Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're thrilled to bring you Mel Cranenberg from Triple R's Backstory, interviewing Alice Robinson and Alice Bishop. Through Robinson's novel The Glad Shout and Bishop's short story collection A Constant Hum, they discussed climate change, the Black Saturday bushfires, human response to disaster, and hope. This is an edited recording. Welcome to today's session of the Yarra Library Author Talks. Uh, I'm Mel Cranenberg, host of Triple R's Backstory, which is a show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines, such as these two beside me. Before I introduce our two guests, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Willem people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and storytellers of this place where sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, today's event represents a corollary of themes, writing, and in the case of our authors themselves, even names. (laughs) Alice Bishop and Alice Robinson have both written books that address our dangerously shifting climate. Both have chosen fiction as a powerful means through which to tell these stories, and both show the quotidian detail, the hardship and pain, but also joy and moments of grace in a suddenly changed climate. But this is where the two books diverge. Alice Robinson's The Glad Shout is set in a future that seems disturbingly close to now and uh, in a stadium-turned-refugee camp where Melburnians, their city destroyed by floods, huddle in wait. Alice Bishop's A Constant Hum is an elegantly woven collection of short stories made uh, in the legacy of the Black Saturday fires, exploring the event from different viewpoints, looking at the shifting uh, legacy of that from the immediate aftermath to years after the event. We'll be discussing the books, how our authors wrote them and the themes they contain, and then I'll also invite you, the audience, to join in. So please welcome our two guests, Alice Alice Bishop and Alice Robinson. I imagine this is going to present a few issues as to how we address both of you. (laughs) Shall we just use your full names? Is that easier? Yeah, Yeah, that's fine. So basically, I'm going to start with you, I think, Alice Bishop. Your collection uh, was started for, you know, really with a devastating personal event. Your family home was lost in the Black Saturday fires. Uh, fortunately, you all survived, but obviously it would have been a really traumatic event. You had a lot of really, obviously, very deep and rich personal detail to draw on. Why then did you decide to address the topic uh, using fiction as your way in? Um, sure. Um, first of all, I would say it's interesting for me to be here because I actually used to work at Yarra Libraries here in Carlton, so it was kind of funny walking back in the doors. Um I think fiction, um, something as big as Black Saturday, um, there's no single story, I guess, and um, although our house burnt down on the day and and there was a kind of ripple effect of of 
hardship from that, I guess. Um, we were really lucky that, that we survived and um, a lot of people weren't that lucky. And I think fiction, um, <clears throat> it kind of gives you some relief from your own story as well. You you can kind of tell stories from from other people that you've met and heard their, their stories as well. And um, in a constant hum, I could kind of weave women's stories, children's stories, and kind of the softer, less kind of cliche men's stories of, of bushfire. And I've written some nonfiction about it, but, but to me, fiction can kind of get to the core of truths sometimes a bit more. Yeah, so. it, does, it does kind of feel that way. This kind of leads me into talking to you, Alice Robinson, because uh, your book also grapples with a drastic disaster, but a flood um, rather than fires. Although you have addressed fires in your earlier book, uh, Anchor Point. Um, But, you know, like Alice Bishop's book, you really do come at it through a character perspective. So you're really travelling through the emotional journey of the characters. In fact, you sort of flit between the present day, if you like, events, which is, uh, you know, a woman who finds herself with her young daughter and her her husband sort of in this refugee camp in a, in a stadium, um, having fled, you know, the floods in Melbourne, uh, now also flitting back to the time when before the floods when she was growing up and the normalcy of that but also the problems that people have in their families the everyday mm. problems why did you choose to kind of structure it like that and how do you think fiction really facilitates telling these kind of stories in a compelling way well maybe I'll talk about the second part of the question first because my sense is and I, this is not a unique idea is that we've really struggled as a culture to find a language for climate change that has an impact. I think science has actually failed to deliver the message in a way that can be understood and felt by lay people, by anyone, really. And so uh, fiction has rushed into that space, I would say, to because fiction isn't necessarily about facts, of course. It's the opposite. It's, it's about human stories and the way those stories make us feel. So when you're talking about something catastrophic like climate change, in a sense, it doesn't really matter on one level for the ordinary person what the kind of parts per million, you know, um, carbon or whatever, you know, like all that stuff, how much ice is going to melt, what our lives are necessarily going to look like, project, you know, in all those scientific projections. What we want to know is how can we mobilise now to make change? And I think that the space that we're in now is one in which potentially fear is one of the only great mobilizers that we've kind of can latch onto in at this moment and how do you experience fear you have to feel something and fiction can allow that actually I've had um a lot of text messages and emails from readers uh, showing themselves weeping in photos as they finish the book which is sort of on the one hand a little bit alarming and on the other hand um you know I feel like I've done my job well sort of you write back and say oh sorry um slash <laughs> glad you liked it <laughs> in terms of why it was structured so it's structured in those alternating timelines one in the immediate aftermath of the disaster when the mother Isabel and her child Matilda are basically in a big stadium not unlike the MCG and they have to survive and those chapters alternate with um chapters of Isabel's childhood and early and teenage years and early adult, a- adulthood 
from her earliest memory sort of to the moment of the storm. And I noticed that um, many of you have probably watched The Handmaid's Tale adaptation on TV and they use the same structure. And I think that's because my instinct was a reader will go with me to that stadium and potentially believe it if the now of the story is not dissimilar from our everyday lives. That's certainly how it works in The Handmaid's Tale and I hope that's what I've done in my book too. That structure was already there before Handmaid, by the way. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. They've done the same thing. Um, So part of it was to – because when you leverage a really catastrophic event against ordinary reality, it seems possible. Um, But also I needed to show the decline of – the political, environmental and personal kind of catastrophes that were unfolding across Isabel's lifespan so that when they arrive in that stadium, um, we believe there's pretty much no hope left and we can get to why that might be in terms of how the narrative unfolds perhaps. It's done really well and I think one of the things that you've kind of, I guess, just touched on there is that, you know, really the dramas that you think of when you're thinking of disaster stories are the disaster, like people dying or people being injured, but actually both of these books very much focus on these small human experiences. You know, the the dramas still within their relationships with people, those, there are still really big things that happen, but to empathise, you kind of have to go to those small places. Alice Bishop, your book really does do this, and from so many different perspectives. I mentioned in the introduction the quotidian detail that both of, both of you have really focused on. Your book in particular has this. Uh, for those of you who haven't read the book, and I really recommend you pick up both of these immediately, um, really these these are just gorgeously written short stories uh, and each one of them you know has another kind of cast of characters in it and perspectives and and viewpoints how did you structure this how did you kind of get that sense of these small essential details and then fill them with these buckets of meaning (laughs) that's a good question and thank you for your kind comments um I think for me writing this book was one where um Obviously, I think I started writing it the day we went back to our house and found nothing left. And I think that was the big event and that was the event that um, will kind of shape me for a long time. But I think it was the smaller events that, um, you know, the house filled with flowers when we went back into the rebuilt house a few years later um, and mum and dad going to the cupboard to get something and realising that it, it was from the other house you know it's those kind of small um things or it's you know um it's a strange one because as soon as you said the house filled with flowers that was the first detail that had popped into my head because it's one that a lot of people have experienced even if they've never experienced a devastating loss of you know due to a a big disaster and I won't say natural disaster because we live in the era of the Anthropocene yeah so I mean all of us have had some familiarity with death yeah. and know that kind of feeling of a house being filled with flowers. It instantly, it's an instant moment of recognition. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's also, and, and both you've touched on structure, um, Alice Robinson. You also have, um, I'm about to <laughs> address the structure of your book because um, unlike the other Alice um, who has the narrative of a novel and the two narratives, the kind of family in the past leading up to the present day and then the kind of narrative of the present day. So it's a, a kind of novel structure and it's done in that classic sort of two time periods that the kind of, you know, gradually move towards each other yours is actually a short story collection but you have found a way to connect the stories or knit them together it's a really interesting device can you talk about the three sections of the book and how the stories fit within it yeah so um i originally started my manuscript was um 90,000 words when I submitted it to text and they said (laughs) my editor said um thanks for the editing (laughs) yeah he said um he's a brilliant editor David Winter at text and he said um we need to get it back down to the 50,000 mark and we want to make it breathe as a collection so he asked me to go away and to um think about how I wanted to break up the collection um in terms of time so he said you know it would be great to have some chronology throughout the book whereas I'd just been looking at the stories in very small sections and that's how I wrote this book I think I'm in awe of novelists because I find the idea of that completely overwhelming so I I wrote the book in small sections obviously with the theme of Black Saturday and um, at first I was going to break up the book into fire warnings so um, everyone will know code Code Red Day and I thought that could start we could start <coughs> with the fire <coughs> excuse me and then go out to the 10 years <coughs> excuse me and then um and then um my editor David Winter was like oh you know how would you think about building up to the fire so that you start in the present day and um you're talking about those kind of longer impacts of of Black Saturday and how people are still rebuilding today and and struggling and then you kind of build up to the kind of crescendo I guess and um I was speaking to my mom about how how I should break it up because I was kind of having a bit of a panic about it and um she was like well you know what about wind patterns and I was I was thinking about you know, obviously northerly wind, a lot of people in Melbourne have that real visceral kind of connotation to the hot northerly winds and I'll forever have um, a big kind of visceral reaction to, to those kind of oven oven wave kind of heat days. But, um, um, yeah, we decided to break it up into so it starts with prevailing, which is obviously the kind of quieter everyday trauma, I guess, or, or people kind of getting about their their business or the prevailing wind and then the second section goes into southerly which is the cooler not quite as hot as northerly and that's probably five years so the collection um, in the middle is about five three years from Black Saturday so that's a lot of the stories are about um, the bureaucracy of rebuilding about um, people's relationships maybe breaking breaking down because that happened a lot after after the fires and um, and then it builds up into northerly, which is um, kind of more stories of um, female firefighters and um, kind of stories of the direct aftermath. Mm. And um, and then it ends at the fire, pretty much. So um, I think 
the answer to that is a really good editor, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really so, interesting. Yeah. I do just want to uh, let you all know that if you want to jump in and ask a question, please raise your hand and um, I'll ask you to stand up and ask it in a loud voice because we don't have any, any mics, although we're quite a small room, so I think it'll work out. So please just raise your hand while we're talking and I'll try and bring you in um, to the conversation so we can keep going with that. I remember talking to Jane Rawson, who has also written what uh, is now, I'm so sad to say, a genre referred to as cli-fi, um, you know, climate change fiction. That is also the era that we sadly live in. And one of the things um, I remember saying about, I think her first book was she'd set it in a sort of dystopian future, but the dystopian future had, a you know, a bit of a hustler in it who actually had, you know, in some ways found a way to to find some measure of happiness in life. Um, certainly in your book, uh, Alice um, Robinson, should referring to your full name, uh, you know, they're really, the characters are in extremists, uh, so there's not a lot of joy to be had. But do you think it is really important to find those moments that uh, it's not unredeemingly miserable, that you have to find some sense of, you know, a, a kind of, you know, human connection. For example, you know, your character, you know, learns the value of friendship and female friendship uh, in a way that she'd never appreciated before, which was a wonderful revelation she would never have gotten if not for this disaster. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, that question really goes to the heart of what was happening when I was writing the book, which was that I was mostly a stay-at-home parent with little, very little children, maybe around age one and three, um, and in a way I kind of feel this is a taboo thing to say but I feel like when you have a baby even in the best scenario where every you know the baby's beautiful and healthy and you're fine and it's like a catastrophe has been unleashed on your life um, because you have no at least for me um, I really wanted the baby. I was really stoked to have the baby, but I just was completely unprepared for the realities of what that would look like. And that was compounded because um, within 21 months I had two babies. So it was like I went into motherhood and then I went really far into motherhood. And so my life was actually completely unrecognisable. In fact, maybe the life wasn't unrecognisable, but I felt unrecognisable to myself. And... The one thing that I did kind of cling on to was the fact that I was a writer and that only really happened, I'm sad to say, because it's not a kind of set, a special internal fortitude that I possess. It was actually just that the first novel got picked up for publication when the first baby was six weeks old. And so for me, writing and motherhood became completely entwined, which made both of those pursuits a lot harder. Um, but also provided me with an outlet in a time or a kind of a clinging on to like a, a former life in a time that was completely, I was unmoored in this new arrangement. So this is a book about climate change and motherhood. I, that wasn't necessarily what I set out to write about, but I had a lot of thoughts about motherhood and I had a lot of ideas about it that I didn't see replicated in the world. I did, felt like really hungry for people to you know, I'd bail people up in playgrounds and want to know, like, is it like this for you? Because I don't see these narratives in the public discourse. And in fact, of course, they're happening. Women are talking about this all the time, privately, because you're, you're um, tarnished as a bad mother, potentially, or that's your fear, if you actually say this is really hard. 
and sometimes quite boring and difficult and all of those things. So so that was what was going on, you know, the framework for what was happening in my life when I was writing the book. And uh, when I submitted, and of course, uh, overlaid with that is this kind of preoccupation with apocalypse and, f- and frustration about that and, and fear, especially because I had then had two kids. And if you really believe that climate change is real, which I do, that poses in- interesting questions around whether children should be um, sent into that future. So you're grappling with that. But when I submitted the early drafts to my publisher, he just said, like, this is too bleak like this is unpublishably kind of bleak you have to put more jokes in it I thought oh my god like, I'm writing about the end of the world like what kind of jokes but he said you know um like the Irish you know a lot of bad things happen to them they can make good jokes I thought oh my god okay um and I went away and thought about this and I thought oh my god I've just spent all this time producing something they can't publish but when I thought about it, I thought what he was saying to me was that the balance between hope and hopelessness was way off, mm. and probably because I felt pretty hopeless at the time. And um, curiously and powerfully, I think, the, what brought that balance back was the relationship between the mother and the child in the story because nothing is actually funnier than toddlers. The child's three, and I chose that age purposefully because it was – and it's sad – it actually is a bit heartbreaking to me. Three is um, big enough to talk, but not so big that you can't carry them if you're trying to escape. So that's why, you know, cognizantly why I chose that age. And I I thought a lot about refugees. At the same time that I was writing this book, um, there was a lot of media coverage of Syrian refugees walking across Europe trying to escape Syria. And a lot of those images, the photos that we were receiving were of families. And I was thinking a lot about the mo- those mothers as I was trying to get my kids to just get out of the house with their shoes on. I was thinking, I wonder if they're having the same little tussles. The kid doesn't want to go to the toilet and then they wear their pants and all of these things that you're dealing with in, in our very safe, privileged world with toddlers. And I thought, I wonder if that's happening when they've really got to go. You've got to go if your life's in danger. And if they're not having those conversations with their toddlers, how much worse that might be for those mothers. Absolutely. So, you know, your book very definitely is a book about mothers and daughters, though there's three generations of mothers and and the mistakes that they make and will repeat or forgive in their parents, you know, is all covered. And it's sort of, you know, this idea of like carrying the world with you, even in the face of disaster is very, very present. But I was, you know, thinking while reading it, one of the big aspects of this book that you can't help thinking about is not only humans' ability to find some kind of resilience or uh, you know, address a sense of normalcy, but the fact that that has in some ways stopped us from addressing climate change <laughs> itself. So this wonderful human trait, which means that we can find a moment, an island, I guess, in, in the midst of all this to be humans, can also be a liability. And that kind of brings me to you, Alice Bishop, because I think the really wonderful thing about the structure of your collection, well, there's many wonderful things, but the particular, um, you know, viewpoint that you get is how people start to sort of move away from the event. Yes, they've learned it, that this awful thing can happen. 
I don't know how many of you remember how bushfires were handled before Black Saturday, but this idea that you could stay and fight was very definitely a present one. After Black Saturday, everything changed. Our notion of what could happen of the firestorm and the devastation was completely different. Mm. But how much do we sort of want to reset to normal to get to that re regeneration and then you know, gradually forget that this could happen because you sort of start to see through the characters that this, you know, this desire to sort of like go back to that sort of wonderful forgetting mm. is very mm. present. I think um, so the the bushfire that burnt down my family home uh, was the East Kilmore fire. So there were two quite huge fires on the day, the Murrindindi and the East Kilmore um, and the reported radiant heat of those two fires was equivalent to two Hiroshima bombs. So I think the percentage of men who died um, was a lot higher than women um, because there was that false um, kind of the national narrative of heroism and, and men in white Western culture kind of really um, their worth being their property or, or, or their belongings or their Ford Falcon or their, you know, all of this stuff. And I think, um, I think, I think that myth, I don't know how much that's changed, to be honest. I think, um, I think the fire that burnt down our house was burning towards our house for four hours. Um, but the message got stopped at the kangaroo ground tower because of bureaucracy and because, um, no one wanted to be the one who gave the warning. And for me, um, that's hard to take, but we're alive. I don't know how hard that would be to take if, if we hadn't survived. And, and I do think that this kind of ability to forget, you know, Australians, that's our thing. We forget our history. We forget Indigenous culture. You know, we've, I'm forgetting the fire already and I think maybe that's part of the reason I wrote A Constant Hum is that it was such a huge thing in my life. But um, I still watch floods and, and disasters on the news with that little element of disconnect because it is our – it's so ingrained in us to just keep on moving on and mm. – um, and that's a scary thing in itself because I saw, you know, what the end of the world looked like and, um, and, and still I'm already forgetting, I think. So, it's yeah. very rare that I ever quote Elaine de Botton, but I think <laughs> <laughs> his book, The News, um, was very much, yeah. a, a, you know, a book that was supposed to be addressing the fact that how do we have yeah. empathy for people in situations so different to our own when they go through some kind of a disaster if we don't know what their normal is? Yeah. And I think that's very definitely the power of these books. But it really brings me to another you know, a question that both of you have kind of raised in your books to a certain extent, yours more explicitly, I think, uh, Alice Robinson, um, in that you you really do, I think one of your characters in fact talks about how if we're going through this here in Melbourne, mm. how bad is it in other parts of the world? And I think that that's one of the great um, things that, you know, the great truisms of the great climate disaster that we're already going through in many parts of the world is that we are a, a rich country. Um, to a certain extent, we have ameliorating factors in the disasters that have already happened to us. We've, we've had ways to bounce back. Other countries, not so much. How much of that responsibility was bearing down on you when you were writing it? I feel in your book, 
the, the great subtext to this book is really, you know, our treatment of asylum seekers here in this country, our lack of empathy for their situations. It's impossible not to feel that. I think I was literally bawling my eyes out when I was, as many I'm sure of your readers are, reading the last um, parts of this book because you suddenly have a really visceral sense of, you know, someone you've grown to empathise with and then what they're now going through, which is, is something very similar to what many people who seek asylum in this country have gone through. Was that, was that a part of your thinking writing this book? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we can all agree that the way that we treat asylum seekers is abhorrent. We, it's a bit of a spoiler, but I'll tell you anyway, that is, uh, eventually in the story, Matilda and Isabel end up on a boat trying to flee mainland Australia and get to Tassie, which is reportedly a safe place. Uh, one of the, the kind of, as a writer, maybe you feel this too, Alice, you sort of have a, like a little list of criticisms that you're anxious someone's going to leverage at the book. And the thing that I worried about the most, which hasn't actually happened, now I'm going to out myself by telling all of you, is that 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 people would say that this is a book about privileged middle-class white people um, suffering the fates that so many people unlike that are already going through now, which is would be exactly correct. That is what happens in the it's book. It's true, I guess, of The Handmaid's Tale as well. That's right. I think right. you could equally say. But I feel like, well, um, it's not that you write the book to make change, but I f do feel now increasingly with climate change, if you're going to spend four years of your life on a project – it, that would be a nice outcome if it if impacted people enough for them to at least consider the way that they're living environmentally. And who buys books in Melbourne? Like middle class, privileged people. So I felt like, well, I've got the target that if I can um, <laughs> create a scenario where anyone of us in this room could be Isabel and Matilda, maybe that would be more impactful, you know, if it, if it can happen to us. Um, maybe we'll feel something about the plight of real women and children in the world who are getting on these boats. I was thinking that, we, you know, the, there's a, the mother, like or, um, Isabel's mother. So, um, you know, we've, we're going between the past and the present. And um, Isabel, who is stranded with her young daughter and her husband, who I don't think it's giving too much away, is not very present for a lot of the book. Um, so her she's reflecting on her mother and all the all of her mother's flaws and the things she loves about her. And one of those um, those elements that you could see as a flaw is that her mum is sort of obsessed with, you know, like home decor and, and like just having this beautiful life. And there's something about that that really feels like the essential sort of, you know, um, I guess misdirection of our focus in our lives, that we're focused on this kind of facade of, of like you know civility or this facade of of actually the of life being okay but in fact just beyond that is disaster was that a sort of an intentional metaphor because it did it did feel as though that that was a really perfect sort of way of juxtaposing the two worlds definitely i i'm um, troubled i mean i'm guilty of it myself but i am deeply troubled by um particularly in melbourne which is the context i know our fascination with real estate i just had a long conversation with my friend's here tonight about where we all live and houses and you know we love homes and houses in um in at this nation potentially and and that is a kind of a very painful preoccupation when you're facing potentially the future destruction of the planet the ultimate home and um maybe our own homes as well 
I do really worry about um, the kind of education and values that I'm bequeathing my kids. And this is addressed in the book in the way that, you know, connected to what you're talking about, Mel, which is that the uh, Luna, Isabel's mother, um, is a real estate agent. She's really into interiors. Her house would probably be in the design files, I reckon. And um, her perception of what constitutes a good life and being a good mother is to give her kids a good education, a beautiful home, um, and probably if the climate wasn't collapsing, you know, international trips and these kinds of things, which I'm sure we share some of those values too in this room. And yet that sets her child up for um, for failure almost in the future that's actually coming for her. And, of course, this worries me too as a parent. I think if I really believed the things that I've written about that they're possible, which I do, who knows how far into the future, then the kinds of the kind of education or childhood that I would be bequeathing my children might be quite different. And yet we're quite stuck on this track of perpetual forward motion that we um, have inherited, I would say. Alice Bishop, this sort of leads quite neatly to your book, I suppose. Well, not. I mean, it's really when we talk about devastating topics, I don't <laughs> think neat has anything to do with it. But you know, really, your notion of home must be challenged, or the the kind of solidity of that. Um, you know, I, like how do you now look at things because you can see that something that felt so solid that that we think of as solid isn't. Um, I think, I think that that part of a constant hum was is a lot of the characters coming to terms with that fact that that the home they they knew will never be the same again. And, and for example, the bush, the ridge where I grew up overlooks the Yarra Valley, so I, I grew up in Christmas Hills. And um, the trees there, I had this false idea that, you know, fire would come through and then you'd see the, the kind of the sprouts and the regeneration and then the next year the trees would be there, you know, because I had quite a kind of, you know, a sheltered upbringing in that, you know, I was a happy kid and... We had our kind of emergency programs at Christmas Hills Primary where it was like, you know, you have your leather boots and your woolen jumpers and stuff um, and your fire clothes. But in our kind of culture, we're so privileged in Australia that we always think that happens to exactly what Alice was talking about. You know, it happens to other people, you know, it's never going to happen to us. And um, even on the day when my dad called me to say, he th- thought he, he just got out in time and he thought that he saw the house burning around him. I was like, nah, you know, he's obviously, he's just scared. Or And even when we we're driving over the ridge to, to go and see what was left, we had these boxes of like, we'll find some photos, we'll find some jewellery, we'll find our pets. And it's that kind of thing that we were talking about earlier of that constant hope that I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's a good thing because I don't know what else to think, I guess. But but yeah, you know, it's home again up there, and it's a different home, and and um, we're just lucky at the moment that the climate isn't bad enough that that it is it has grown back, I guess. And I mean, the way we're going, it'll get to a point where where these disasters and these firestorms will be happening even more than once every ten years. So. Um, we really have to do a lot more than we're doing now. Alice Bishop, I, I want to just keep you talking for a little bit longer because I think your book particularly, and we haven't really gone into great depth about this, but there is such a huge cast of characters and really they're very different. They have very different perspectives. Your writing also shifts quite a lot throughout. So the first story sort of feels like 
it's almost a, a retelling uh, as though it's a it's a it's a real event and it's a a kind of Helen Garner-esque kind of a, a, a huge court story well <laughs> and then you know you are in the the first person you're in the second person you're moving around um, in the characters minds in different ways I'm really interested in how you picked the characters that you did and then why the perspective shifts that you chose because it really yeah it really works most of the characters are people from my community so most most of the characters for example in the first opening story it's based on the image of um, our neighbor's dog their house didn't burn down but her dogs or she found her dogs um, curled up from smoke inhalation and that that image of her going back and finding her her kind of dogs that looked so peaceful to me I wanted to expand on that you know later in this in the book there's a few images about um, the horses that got released on the day Um, they're kind of fleeing through smoke and and the um the owners had chalked their kind of phone number into their into their coats because um, they thought if they found them either dead or alive, they'd know where they'd ended up, I guess. And so for me, all of those different pinpoints of imagery, I experimented with either first person, second person, longer stories, shorter stories, but um, that's why it took so long, I think, is because I wanted to have a breadth of, of viewpoints, but I wanted them to all link in together, so I needed to to kind of balance lighter stories with heavier stories, stories of a bit more hope with darker stories, stories from the perspective of of kids with um, older women, with older men, with younger. I just wanted it to kind of be a real tapestry of of Black Saturday kind of experiences, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, just to pick up on this idea of fictionalising, did you actually, Alice Robertson, what, you know, because I know it's it's a really terrible question in some ways when you're writing a novel particularly to sort of say how much research did you do to sort of get the sense of reality into the book? Um, I guess uh, with Alice, Alice Bishop's book, the source material is quite evident, but for yours it's a, a little trickier. Well, the first novel, Anchor Point, I did in a PhD program and my research in that time was about climate change. After that finished, I had the two babies and kind of, you know, grumpily, I suppose, I thought, I'm not doing any more research. You know, I live in regional Victoria, I've got two babies, I can't get anywhere, I'm just not going to do it. And actually, it was so liberating because I realised, of course, if you choose fiction writing, it's because you like making stuff up and being creative. And to be unburdened from all of that, I thought, like, I'm really well suited to this job. So that was my, my thinking. And to I suppose the the kind of the research aspect if or the kind of life writing aspect was about the motherhood stuff. I felt I was on solid ground, no pun intended, when I when I wrote about that I thought um, I believe this to be true on a really core deep level and it's been really gratifying to hear from readers, mostly women, who say thank you for writing that. I, I re- It resonated with me, those aspects, and so I think that's wonderful especially because it's contained in quite a far out there story. But one thing I did do, because one of the things that happens when you're writing a book for publication is that eventually you encounter an editor and a lot of their job is to say, but why did she do X? Or um, how did they get out of the stadium? Or, um, you know, to, to pick holes in the narrative and you want your editor to do that so that your reader doesn't do that. 
But it's a bit annoying because you think, oh, I don't know, I just made it up. Um, so one of the things I started to do in that four-year period of the writing was to, to, to print out every article that popped up in my social media or in the online news that I was reading um, and print it out and put it in a folder. And these were articles that, re- that mirrored the things that I had made up in the book that were happening somewhere in the world. Margaret Atwood says um, that there's nothing in her books that hasn't happened somewhere. And I thought, if it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. But what it indicated to me between the first book being published in 2015 and The Glad Chat being published this year, when I was writing Anchor Point, climate change was the purview of scientists and specialised research. So I was looking at the IPCC reports and all of that kind of material. Between then and now, um, it's entered my social media feed and it would be the same for all of you. Greta Thunberg's done, you know, she's everywhere, isn't she? But not just her, you know, reports of the impacts of climate change globally and in Australia just, you know, can scroll, scroll through. And what that indicates to me is that we've undergone a massive cultural shift where we've gone from yeah, being specialised knowledge to being everyday. And that's really alarming to me because it indicates that we've hit a point where we understand that it's happening potentially and um, it's part of our everyday lives. One of the other things that worries me is that a lot of the readers of this book have tried to compliment me by saying that they feel it's really plausible and that also really worries me interconnected with that idea of it being everywhere. None of us want to believe that a story like the one that I've written could happen here. And yet that seems to be what readers feel and that's heartbreaking to me. How have because you've handled hope really in, in really interesting ways in this in these books. Both both Alice's I'd love to answer this. <laughs> you know, what measure of balance did you do you want to achieve with that? Because I think there is a sense, particularly in stories that are about people from countries like ours, where we have an expectation that they go through some great adversity, but there is there is kind of salvation on the other side that at least some of the characters will get there I guess you know the the narrative of climate change is that perhaps that that Mm. isn't necessarily the case how did both of you sort of address this because both books did contain seeds of hope um in them how did you address that about that was that um the immediate lives of the characters should um go on to the extent that is um reasonable but I didn't, you know, it, it is a sad story, but I felt like for to do justice really to the reader who's followed them for 300 pages or like, you know, to kill a child on the last page or something, that's, that's going pretty bleak. So I thought, you know, the, in some way the reader has to feel like these two characters at the heart of this story that they've believed in and rooted for and want to see survive, that they're going to be okay maybe in at least the immediate future. But I think overlaying that is a sense that like what kind of future will they really have because everything's pretty screwed up I think personally I wanted to write hope in that one of the best parts of my life was seeing the birds come back and the wallabies come back and slowly see um, people and some people will never return and that's fine Um, but um, one of the biggest joys of my life has been sitting on the deck, you know, rebuilt deck with my mum and dad and um, being surrounded by blackened trees but but being like we're so happy we're here and we're so happy we're home and home feels a bit better now that we've been through that 
Um, and I know that's a privilege and a luck and all of that kind of stuff. But um, seeing the seeing the bush grow back and be able to write that through a constant hum has has given me a lot of hope. Yeah. Well, I I sort of want to leave on the note of hope, I guess. Um, I very much encourage you to read both of these wonderful books and I'd love you to thank um, both of the Alices now for their time. That was Alice Bishop and Alice Robinson in conversation with Mel Cranenberg at Carlton Library on September 25th, 2019. We run regular author talks at all branches of our libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend Journeys, our next Carlton After Hours Poetry Reading, presented in partnership with Australian Poetry. Join us on November 20th. If you're keen to read A Constant Hum or The Glad Shout, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries want your food. And not so we can stockpile it in case of disaster. If you bring us non-perishable items within their use-by date, we'll donate them to Food Bank on your behalf. And if you have any overdue fines, we'll waive those for you as a thank you. How good is that? Until then, happy reading! <laughs>